Hello and welcome to episode 133 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode is the editor and director Jennifer Sheridan. We get to sit down and talk all about her brand new film, Rose, A Love Story, which as right now in this moment is sitting at 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'll get into it more in a bit, but I urge you to all go and check it out. It's a great little horror, it's a great indie film, and with a low budget, honestly, Jennifer has produced miracles. So we'll get to that in a few moments. But in true typical Mark and Me fashion, you should know the score by now, I do like to touch base and talk about my last episode. I was joined by the actor, Deo Okanini. The interview was great, so full of life, so full of energy, and I've even had some people email me and drop me texts this week saying it's their favourite episode I've ever done. So thanks, I'm glad it meant so much to you. It was a great interview and a great actor to have on. And as I said on the episode last week, he has agreed to come back on and talk even more in the near future. But let's get back into today's episode. As I said, I'm talking to Jennifer Sheridan. She's absolutely lovely. She's a great interview from start to finish. And I do truly believe the best thing to do is to get to it. So here's me and Jennifer talking all things film. So Jennifer, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. There'll be a lot of people out there today that are tuning in for the first time that want to get to know a bit more about you. And what I want to do is take it back to the start. So at what age was it that you were discovering that you absolutely loved films? Because we all grew up watching DVDs and videos with our parents and stuff. But at what age was it that you started to take a bit more notice of those things that were happening in front of you and the posters and the actors and all the films around you? Well, I guess when the first time that I'd started to take it seriously was when I was at college um, because I had this incredible teacher called Dean Peckett who sadly isn't alive anymore but he was amazing and he was like oh you should watch this film uh, called The Eye which was this kind of Asian horror film really weird and really scary and creepy but I just absolutely loved it and totally fell in love with it. And I came in the next day and was just like, oh my God, sir, I watched it. It was so good. And he was like, oh, you liked it. And then he started recommending more things like Battle Royale. And I just like, he kind of sparked this real passion in me for Asian horror at the time, um, which I sort of subsequently forgot about and then came back to later on. But yeah, I think he's the catalyst really. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's quite an extreme way to start. I remember buying those DVDs, the Tartan Extreme editions of stuff like Old Boy and Open Water and Taylor Two Sisters. And I remember buying all those ones you just mentioned and um, stuff like Itchy the Killer and stuff. I mean, those films are pretty extreme to kind of grab your interest and make you then want to have a career in filmmaking. <laughs> I think that's what it is. It's, it was the extreme nature of them that I was just it was kind of blew my little South London mind you know yeah <laughs> it's just like what is this um and how can I see more of it so once your teacher's giving you these DVDs and stuff were your parents approving or like what the hell is your teacher giving you these really gory horrible horror movies for were they like okay we trust you can go off and make a film career of yourself or were they kind of pushing for you to kind of go down the my parents were very big on we need you to get a proper job you know <laughs> those sort of things well, I think I was really lucky with my parents, actually, because they're both sort of Irish immigrants who came to London in the 70s and sort of went their own way in life. And um, my dad, who was a secondhand car salesman by trade, but he was like, in his spare time, he was a poet and he ran a 
like a music night in Soho once a week. And he was, he was very much encouraging of pursuing your passions and not sort of like limiting yourself. I mean, luckily he was passionate about cars, so he didn't hate his job or anything, but he was definitely a lot more passionate about music. And yeah. So he was just like, follow your dreams and see what you're passionate about and where it takes you. So did you at college and at university start to think that this is a route that I can actually see becoming a reality? Because obviously people dream of being on stage or holding a camera and making their first film. But at what point was it that you kind of saw that change where you thought, do you know what? This is becoming something that I really do think I can actually make my own. That's a really good question because I I don't think that I did believe it was no. possible for a long time, um, especially for uni, you know, I... I I sort of studied radio and television production and I thought, oh, maybe these are achievable. But even they felt like pipe dreams almost. Um, and then when I sort of found editing and realised I was quite good at that um, and then pursued that as a career, I got quite lucky and had some good opportunities that got me into editing quite quickly because a lot of people are like, you become a runner and you work your way up. But I managed to sort of sneak in the back door almost Um so then when I started editing TV, I was like, oh, okay. But then film still felt like this impenetrable fortress. And everyone was like, well, if you're a TV editor, you know, it's really hard to switch to film editing. And people always sort of tell you, don't they? They, they manage your expectations. Yeah. Um, which is helpful. But, but you also have to sort of doggedly kind of blinky yourself and shoot for what you want to do. And obviously being lucky enough to work on the BBC and getting to do some editing on stuff like League of Gentlemen, which is one of my favourite comedies of all time. I mean, that's an amazing opportunity to kind of start your career in and kind of really get to kind of learn the, the trades, the business and stuff. And how was it working on a series that still to this day holds up as one of the best for Britain and for just really good written dark humour? Oh, my goodness. It was, it was, I'm not, this sounds like something that people say on podcasts and isn't real, but genuinely 100%, I would come into the edit suite, sit down, look at the footage and just go, I'm going to pinch myself, I'm going to pinch myself. <laughs> and I remember, because you know, they have those opening montage to like the Royce and Vasey music yep. goes up to the statue for the titles. Yep. And when I first put one of those together, I was like, I have to show someone. <laughs> and I sort of went out into the edit house that I was working in and there were loads of editors working on The Crown and like big dramas and stuff. And I sort of knocked on the first door and I was like, can I just show you something? And brought this poor man into my edit suite. And I was like, watch this. And he was like, oh yeah, that's good. And I was like, you are not my people. I chose the wrong man. I need someone who's <laughs> about the League of Gentlemen because this is huge. It was so massive. For me, I was just like, this is crazy. Because I, I loved that show. Yeah. And the year before I worked on it, it all came on Netflix. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to rewatch all of this. I rewatched all of Psychoville and Inside Number Nine because I'm just a bit obsessive about those guys. So to then be editing it, I was just like, this is this is just I just I just can't believe this. And then I got to meet them and they gave me edit notes and they were so lovely and like really collaborative and just so humble for who they were. I was just like, oh my God, do you not understand that you're absolute geniuses? That's the word, genius. I always refer to people like those writers as geniuses because stuff like Inside Number Nine is up there still with the writing levels of League of Gentlemen. It blows my mind that they continually keep releasing stuff, even now. 
and it's yeah. it's never drops in standard it's just incredible and that's what you know you really get that sense from them that they always want to go further and like push themselves they never rest on their laurels and no it, it's so it's just incredibly inspiring that they're, they're such incredible people and and i just yeah but funnily enough, that was actually sort of the end of my edit career because I was like, I'm never going to get to edit anything as good as <laughs> No. That's the problem, is it? When you do something that high, it's like, you know, they've finished League of Gentlemen now and it's a case of like, well, where do I go from here? There's not going to probably be anything unless something like Spaced returns or something like that. You know, that would be the dream. But um, oh, let's that... go Spaced. Let's call it the right. That's it. <laughs> Definitely. Series three. That's what we need. That's what we need. So, so after this stage, you literally just took the next question out of my uh, mouth. But I was going to say, what was it then that made you transition into the kind of directing side? Because obviously editing is a great way and it's a big process. It's very monotonous, isn't it? I mean, I edit all my life doing podcasts and stuff, but it's, it takes a certain type of strength and mentality to keep on doing it. But at what point was it that you thought, I now feel that I need to take that next step into kind of directing? Well, it was really, you know, it kind of really was around that time of, the League of Gentlemen time because for so long I'd been pushing to get scripted work as an editor and and that was like my end goal and then when I achieved it I was like oh okay so now this is my life essentially I'll just carry on doing this for the next like 25 years um and I suddenly realized that it's sort of it, as much as I love editing and I do have a huge passion for it I think it's an incredible part of the process I realized that I just wanted something more and I wanted more agency in the kind of storytelling part of it. Yeah. The creation part of it and the ideas part of it was so exciting to me. And it was drawing me away from editing because once you're in an edit, you're presented with what's what's been shot. And it's great because you're like, oh, okay, so how can we make this as good as it possibly can be? But it's like you've already been given the materials to build the house. Whereas when you get to write the blueprints of a story and, and decide what it might look like and feel like and sound like, and you, it's just so much more exciting. And looking back at your career history so far, I mean, you've still got a massive career ahead of you, but you've done a lot of shorts and TV series and work like that. But then obviously we're here now promoting Rose or as some saying Rose, a love story. And um, with this release, how did that actually come about? Because it's a big step from doing editing and some TV work and shorts to be doing a full on feature length. And where and when did this actually become more than just a bit of an idea on paper? When did it become reality? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so many little moments that sort of led to it. But I think the biggest one for me personally was being signed to my agent because um, he was the one that sent me the script that Matt yeah. had written and was like, I think this would be a really good fit for you as a director. And I was like, OK, great. Read it, loved it, met with Matt, loved Matt. We got on so well. Um, but even then, it was one of those things of like, well, this might happen but it also might not because I know a lot of people through the circuit and I've made a lot of short films um, and met a lot of filmmakers who have been trying to make features for years you know and and it just doesn't happen for whatever reason so I was very I had a healthy level of this might not happen but let's let's go for it let's see what we can what we can do and then Sophie came on quite early because her and Matt were working together on a show called um Jamestown which is a sky show 
and she had ideas as well as bringing you know a brilliant actor to the part of rose so it started to take leg it started, started to have legs then yeah and take start to take more shape and we sort of worked on the script for sort of about 18 months back and forth ideas and 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 it got to a really good place where finally my agent who is also part of a sort of development arm was like okay i'm gonna put this in front of some people and see if we can raise some money for it and and that happened really quickly which was surprising i mean it wasn't a huge amount of money which helped a lot uh and it was less money than we were told we'd need to make it but we we then brought on these incredible producers called April and Sarah, who I knew from the festival circuit and who'd made loads of short films and were so ready to make their feature. They just needed that opportunity. And it just kind of all happened at the same time. And with their work ethic and can do way of doing things, it, it, it just spit rolled into this thing. And suddenly we were in the woods and we had 15 days to shoot a feature. And it just, it was like blinking, you missed it, but it was brilliant. It was so much fun. And was there was there certain films because of the budget and the genre that you were taking inspiration from, or you were watching beforehand? I mean, I'm a big fan of directors like Neil Marshall, so the British horrors like The Descent and Dog Soldiers, and all those sort of films that kind of don't require a stupidly big budget, but they still look good, and you don't think, oh, these look poor, and oh, if only this did have budget, they do just they do justice with the money they're given and i think that's the respect that you've got for this title especially with people i've spoken to and being able to see the film myself you can see that it doesn't look like a cheap low budget film which is a compliment to you and obviously everyone involved yeah no i did i love the descent it's one of my favorite horror films yeah um and the descent too is actually directed by the editor of the descent uh one fun fact but anyway um so i watched there's a film called The Hollow. Have you seen The Hollow? It rings a bell. Really does ring a bell. Um, I lose track of so many horrors I watch and so many different films I see, but um, The Hollow does ring a bell. It's it's um it's sort of set in the Irish wood, so it was a really good inspirational film to watch. I thought that was brilliant. And then also It Comes at Night. That's was, a great film. Yeah, and that was really that really helped me because I knew that we didn't have a huge lighting budget. Yeah, and Ned. You, done really clever things with lighting people in woods using lanterns you know because if you have someone holding a torch obviously the light's going away from their face and you only get a bit of spill on their face whereas a lantern has got like a 360 light so it lights the person holding it um which i totally stole (laughs) yeah why not well you, you you played homage that's the best way to say it so you can't get in trouble you played homage to this I played homage big time. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want plagiarism on the podcast. We get suddenly you're in a court case. But it's a, it's a nice respectful homage. Yeah, a good, a good respectful homage. Yeah. Yeah. That was really helpful to have films like that. And like you said, before you knew it, I mean, this is what happens, doesn't it? You have an idea, you suddenly go to try and get financing. The next thing you know, you've got a camera and you've got a team and you're in the woods. And you said you did it in just over two weeks. Did you at any point think... I've bitten off more than I can chew. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is uh, this is overwhelming. Or were you always kind of strong enough mentally to know that you're in control and you, you've got the right people around you and you feel secure enough to get this project finished? I think there were a few moments. I can think of one in particular where I was sort of stood in the dark, in the woods. I think it was raining. 
a, a bunch of stuff had gone wrong that day, you know, props had gone missing <laughs> in other parts of the woods. Um, and I, there was a moment where I was like, wow, this is a lot, you know, and, and, and it was a little bit overwhelming just for that moment. And then what ended up happening was our script supervisor dislocated her knee. <laughs> wow. And it just popped out and she was like, she was this sort of Irish, very hardy lady. And she was like, don't worry, I'm going to put it back in. Just pull. And we were like, oh my God. It's like Rambo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On set yeah. with Rambo. Yeah. And we were like, get the medic and I make sure she's okay. And then once we, once she was okay, it, it totally refocused my mind. And I was like, ah, oh, okay, here's what we're going to do. Let's string the deer up here. Let's do the blood here. This, that, and the other. But it was like, it was almost like I just needed a reset for my brain. Yeah. And that was it. That little crisis moment just totally re reset my brain. And then I was like, right, okay, I know what we're doing now. And after that, it was fine. So, yeah, it was a funny moment. And then when it's all done, it's all wrapped. And I know we say it in just a short sentence, and it's, it's so much sweat, pain, blood that goes into it. When it's all finished and it's all wrapped up and the response came out and the BFI London Film Festival made it their official selection last year, what was it like to kind of feel like this is done now, I'm ready for the world to see it? Was there a point because, as an editor myself with podcasting, I, I find it really hard to know when it's finished, like an artist is drawing and I have to kind of give myself a deadline and set myself to fail if I don't hit that deadline. That's the only way I can be that strict on myself anymore. Is there a point where you had to kind of say to yourself, that's it, the film's done, I have to let it go? Yeah, definitely. I mean one of the plus sides of having no money and no time is that you don't end up with any sort of excess you haven't got like oh scenes that you can really cut although we did cut a couple of scenes but there wasn't like a huge amount of options kind of to to play with so in that respect it made it easier because it was like this is what it is this is the film and we feel like this is the best version of that film so it definitely came to that point where i felt like yeah this is this is the best version of this film and hopefully people like it um and thankfully at least some people did which is good. <laughs> huge relief and now the film's done and out there and we're in a weird place now where the world's starting to now talk about cinemas reopening and hopefully we can still see people making films again and this one's now under your belt you've done it it's officially finished it's out it's ready to go What's your kind of next couple of years looking like? Are you now ready to just kind of get right back into the next one? Have you got things in the mix already that you're ready to start getting your teeth stuck into? Or are you just kind of reflecting and seeing what's going to come from this? Well, so at the moment I'm in Manchester because I'm just in prep on a four-part BBC drama. Lovely. Very exciting. Uh, so that takes up most of my year. I won't be done on that till sort of October. Um, but on the in the sort of wings is a TV series that I've been developing with a writer for a while and a feature film that I've been developing for a while. So there's things sort of in the wings. Yeah. I'm hoping we'll continue to get to a really good script st stage by the time I'm done and dusted on this show. Uh, and then I'd love a little holiday. <laughs> yes. You're not allowed to leave the country right now, but when we can, then yeah, yeah. go somewhere nice. Yeah. A little holiday would be lovely. Um, but yeah, it's it's so it's so exciting. I love the idea that 
you don't really know what story you're going to be telling next year. It could be this, it could be this. And especially for someone like me, who's never really stuck to one genre. Um, and I always thought that was like a weakness and that people would be like, what are you? Who are you? <laughs> what stories are you trying to tell here? You've just done a fantasy kids show. Now you're doing a drama and you did a horror. Like, who are you? Because um, I also really like sci-fi. So yes. um, I guess it's, it's exciting that the world doesn't seem to be saying get in your box and yeah. there, which is really like I'm really happy that that was the response and a question that I ask everyone on the podcast it doesn't matter if they're a director a cinematographer a musician or a soundtrack artist there's people that listen to the podcast that are at film school or at college or uni that want to become a director or want to become an editor and you said today on today's episode that you know, you were quite fortunate that you got to do these works quite early into your career. But what advice do you give to the people that want to be like you and get their name out there and get noticed and start to be able to get involved in projects and hopefully have a career like yourself where you can be an editor or a director? I would say the most important thing is to find people that you can collaborate with, um, that you have similar tastes to you know who you know you like the same kind of films or the same kind of shows and then if you sort of find a crew that you can collaborate with it helps when you don't have the money or the backing to kind of practice the craft in your own time and just try and make as much as you can because even before I was an editor and being paid to edit I was still editing anything I could get my hands on friends music videos or you know, behind the scenes things, I'd be like, can I come and shoot behind the scenes stuff for you? You don't have to pay me, but it's just something that I can put on my reel. Um, so it's finding any opportunity to practice and make things. And don't expect the first thing you make to be it that opens all the doors. Yeah. It might be, but it also might not be. And that's okay too, because you're just learning. Um, yeah. And something I ask everyone, and it's not an easy question, but I put you on the spot, but every episode of the Mark and Me podcast has a different piece of outro music, and that's because the guest gets to choose it. Now, if I gave you too long to think about it, you'd wake up at two in the morning and think, oh, why didn't I ask for this song or this song? But what yeah. I want to do is put you on the spot, and I'm going to ask you, the episode's finished, your interview's done, I've done my outro, and we're listening on Spotify, and then suddenly your outro piece of music comes up. What is a one piece of music or a song by a band that's the first one that comes to you that you think from the heart and soul is a really good summary or representation of your music love or has something to do with you that makes this episode exclusively to you? I'm going to say the Divine Comedy, um, Finder. Sickle, is that how you say it? Findersickle. I'll Spotify it and Google it and <laughs> find it on there. Yeah, just because it's like, it's just fun and bonkers and sort of, I don't know, it kind of makes me feel happy and on a journey. <laughs> That's a good enough reason, why not? Some people try and break it down and have three or four choices and end up saying, can I just email you in a few days? But I like the one that comes straight to the heart and the head and you think that's the one we go with. Yeah, I feel like if I was a film, that would be my credits music. That's good. I like it. And maybe you'll get to use it one day in a film and think, ah, there we go. I so I wonder if it's been used in a film. It feels like it would have been. It should have, but yeah, maybe not. If not, be the first to do it. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> 
I want to thank you for your time and coming on the podcast today. Literally, by one minute, we're ready to go. Um, I wish you all the luck with the release of the film. I can't wait for people to start listening to the podcast, then checking it out, and then seeing tweets and Facebook comments and people saying how much they love the film. But it sounds like you've got an amazing future ahead. It's great that you're now still working in Manchester and you've got more projects to get involved in. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and giving me your time today. Oh, thank you. It's really fun. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Jennifer. So lovely, so bubbly, so accommodating with her time and just an absolute pleasure to have on the podcast. I love these sort of guests that are so down to earth that will talk to you about the business and just kind of not put up any front. You just basically get the real person. And Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was an honour to have you on and to hear about how you got to work for the BBC with the likes of Legal Gentlemen, also Rose, A Love Story, which is right now one of my favourite films of the year. And for anyone listening, it is out now on all digital platforms. So seriously, I urge you all to stop listening to this episode and go and check that movie out. If you've loved today's episode, as I always say on every episode, you can support me for free by sharing this on your social media networks. All you have to do is go onto Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, retweet it, share it on your stories or put it on Facebook and hit that share button. It costs absolutely nothing and can bring a whole new audience to Mark and me. I see a huge uplift in the numbers once people do this and it means the absolute world. Also I have a Patreon page. On there you can sign up for as little as a pound and thanks to the amazing folks and the sponsor of the podcast, the awesome Vice Press News, they come along and give me some incredible posters that you guys can win out there. Not just that, you're going to get episodes early and I've got a surprise for everyone next month. I'm not going to reveal yet, but you're going to get something exclusive for being a Patreon to say thanks for supporting the podcast. I can't lie, the next episode of Mark and Me is absolutely huge. I'm going to start teasing it as soon as tomorrow and honestly it's one of the biggest interviews I've ever done and I can't wait to share it with you. There's no clues on this episode, you'll have to stay tuned on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and you know the score, you'll see some clues starting as early as tomorrow for this episode. It's going to be huge and I can't wait for you to listen. So I'm going to keep you on that, I'm going to keep you juiced up and dangling and I'll be back in a few days time with that episode. So until then, take care and I'll speak to you all soon. two men. Every woman should have at least two men. If you don't, there's something wrong. I mean, guys do it all the time. Guys have a woman on this side of town, the other side of town. They have a woman in another city. Why shouldn't we? Tabloids head.